All right, so go ahead and find your spot. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Um, this series is going to be a little bit different, one, because we're going to be taking like four to seven verses each night as opposed to covering like a hundred years at a time. Um, so this is just naturally going to be a little bit different. Also, we're going to be making sure that we're going to get some discussion going on. So just like we have had before with uh, whenever we are teaching through each individual section, if you've got questions, let them fly then. But at the end, we're going to have discussion questions that we're all going to participate in. And here's what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to ask the question, and I am patient. And if you get awkward by that, I'm going to be just fine. So if you don't want to be awkward, let that opinion fly. That's how we're going to handle this thing, yeah? So let me read... 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and then I'm going to give us the roadmap. We're going to pray for where all we're going, and then we're going to dive in, yeah? So I'm reading from the ESV, and this is what John writes for us in 1 John 1, 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father, and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things, so that our joy may be complete." All right, four verses. Here's the way this whole night is going to shake out. We are going to run through all of these sections, and the goal is for us to be done in about 30 minutes. Okay, So we're going to do 30 minutes or so, walking through four verses with all this stuff you see up on the screen, and then we're going to have 20 or so minutes at the end of this thing to where we're going to have discussions. So let me tell you this. If y'all don't want to make it super, super awkward and we're all just waiting around for our kids to be done because we got done in 33 minutes, Let's get some discussion going, okay? All right, so what we're going to do is we're going to take a big step back and we're going to look at the similarities and the prologues between the Gospel of John and the prologue of 1 John. I'm just going to highlight a couple of things there. By the way, all these notes are online. Uh, you're probably going to be furiously writing some stuff down. It's available already, okay? And then we're going to work through the first three verses. We're going to highlight these sensory experiences. And then we're going to look at verses 1 and 2, verse 3, verse 4. And then we're going to get into our discussion questions and everyone's favorite section, homework. Every week, I am giving you homework. That starts tonight. I promise you it ain't hard, but you're going to need to do it, okay? Word? Questions so far? This is the syllabus portion of the class for everybody, right? This is, this is what we're doing. All right, let me pray for us, and then we are going to dive into understanding 1 John. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we have the chance to gather, to be able to explore your word in depth, to be able to slow down and to be able to look at just four verses tonight. God, I thank you for the time that I've got to spend in meditation and prayer and preparation i got to pray for everyone who is in here, whether they have uh, been uh, working through the material already or if this is the first time they're hearing some of the things we're talking about. God, I pray that this would be beneficial for them um, and for us as a body altogether. God, we pray that this would be beneficial um, not only just for edifying us, but also for honoring you. And as is my custom, I would just ask for you to pray for me and uh, that the words that I say would be accurate, it would be beneficial, it would be clear, and that I would say nothing out of harmony with the gospel. If you would, pray that for me.
Father, I have looked forward to this semester. I have looked forward to this night with students being back, with our church family gathering for a meal together, for our church family gathering to surround the word um, as it has been written uh, for our benefit and for um, our knowledge of you that brings you glory. God, I pray that as we are working through explaining this text, that as I am speaking and as questions are being asked, God, I pray that you would send your spirit to give us clarity of thought. I pray that we would be able to comprehend rightly what it is that you have written for um, our instruction. And we pray that ultimately you would be the one that receives the glory for all these things. So Lord, we give you this time. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. All right. <clears throat> all right. So first thing we're going to do is I'm going to give you all of this stuff in 1 John 1 and then John chapter 1. Okay. So the gospel of John and 1 John chapter 1. There's going to be some very clear similarities and I'm just going to throw them up there. You can write these down or if you want to take a picture, grab them offline, whatever. Here's the point. In the first four verses of 1 John chapter 1, we see that this is like introductory material. This is like a very weird run-on sentence. Um, how many of y'all are like super precise grammaticians when it comes to English? Like, if you are looking in the first two or three sentences, there's like three different relative pronouns. That's not how you start a letter, okay? So... 1 John chapter 1 is odd. What's crazy about 1 John chapter 1 is it sounds a whole lot like John chapter 1. In the first 14 verses of John chapter 1 in John's gospel, he is opening up in a very similar way. And so some of the things that you'll see is that both are going to reference from the beginning, right? It's going to be taking us all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. There's like a really clear identification of the logos, the logos up there. Logos, that's the word, um, is linked with the Father and with the life that we see that's eternal life here in 1 John 1. And so you can just see all those references and go check them out. Here's the point that I want to make. I am making the assumption, based off of not only this evidence, but also word choice and all the other stuff that we see throughout 1 John, I am making the assumption that John, the apostle, the beloved disciple, the guy who wrote the Gospel of John and wrote 1 John, he is assuming that his audience is familiar with his Gospel narrative, right? He is going to draw from language that literally is only found in John's Gospel and it's not found in the Synoptics. He is going to draw from themes that Jesus highlights in John's Gospel that are not found in the Synoptics. And so the way that I see this working out is that John is going to immediately front load a lot of that and make us draw our attention to the similarities between his opening letter here and his gospel narrative. Okay, so I've already said it a couple of times. I am going to call 1 John a letter, which is what it is. But you've got to understand, this ain't like any other letter that you read in the New Testament. It is weird. Like if you're looking for a greeting and an opening prayer and an identification of the author, you ain't getting any of that in 1 John. You just ain't. You get it in 2 and 3 John, but not here. And so what happens in 1 John, it actually reads much more like a, a poetic lecture or like a poetic sermon. I think I've read somewhere, somebody described it that way. It's, it is a letter, and it's written from John to an immediate audience that is there likely in Smyrna or Ephesus. But it ain't going to read like a normal letter. And if you want more information about that, you can go watch the, uh, the intro video that I posted a couple of weeks ago. It gives you a little bit more background information, but I think that will suffice for us right there. So, 
This is a letter. I think what John is doing is he is immediately opening up with language that is meant to transport us back to John chapter 1 and his gospel narrative, which if you go and look at that, you can go look at last year's uh, series whenever I taught through the gospel of John. We took two weeks to walk through those 14 verses. You will see that even the way he writes that is meant to transport us back to Genesis chapter 1. Word? Tracking with that? All right. If you want to disagree, that's cool. Totally fine with that. I don't actually think this is a major point that everything else in 1 John hangs off of the idea that his audience is familiar with the gospel narrative that he wrote, but I do think it is illustrative for the rest of the book. Cool? Let me get north-south. No? Okay, we're moving on. All right, so here's what I want to do. I want to take, looking at these first three verses, and I want you to tell me where do you see John drawing from sensory evidence with their senses, right? Your five or seven or a hundred senses, depending on how you count it. Uh, yeah. How many, how many pieces of evidence do you see in the first three verses of John referencing some kind of sensory um, availability that he has as a witness to Jesus? What do you see? Heard. Okay. So we see heard. Christine, I saw your hand go up. Okay, so you see multiple, okay. No, 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 you're right there. So we're going to see multiple ones of these, and we're actually going to see, let's just throw it up there. He says, we have heard, okay? So we got heard, and we'll talk about that, and actually, I'm just going to throw it up there. He says that twice, in verse 1 and in verse 3. Yeah? He has seen with his eyes. We have seen with our own eyes. Incidentally, he says that three times, verses 1, 2, and 3. Is there another sensory piece of evidence that John is going to draw from here? Touched. I'm going to skip it because that's not in the order that I have it here. My bad. Touched. That's one. Touched with our hands specifically. Is there another one that you see? Looked upon. And so just so you know, the word there that's getting used for looked upon is also gazed, we beheld, we contemplated, we examined, we held closely and brought it close so that we could see what was going on, okay? I think whenever John is talking about that we have seen with our own eyes, he is talking about like this literal physical thing that they saw, not metaphorically because it's with my own eyeballs, right? But whenever he's talking about that we have examined, that we have looked upon, we have beheld, does anyone have another translation for that? Looked upon, beheld, contemplated, examined. Handled. What was it? Handled. Handled. We'll see that here in a second. Yeah. So the point is, like, I think what's going on there is John has already covered this literal, physical examination with the eyes. But here when he says that we have looked upon, we have beheld, contemplated, I think what he's drawing on there is like, it goes deeper than that. And I'm drawn back to the story of Jesus whenever he's asleep at the front of the boat and the storm's going nuts and his boys wake him up and like, teacher, you don't care about us? We're about to die. And Jesus just stands up and goes, hey, quit it. And then the storm stops and he like goes back to sleep, I guess. And what did his boys say? What kind of man is this? They saw that happen and it was indented into their mind brain like they could not deal with that any other way that is like we saw that happen like what do we do with this 
I think that's what he's talking about whenever they examined, they beheld. And then we also said that we touched or we handled or we felt with our hands. Okay? Now, let me just say this. I think John is doing this intentionally. Heard, saw, beheld, handled. If you notice, he's actually like progressing in sensory evidence that's actually harder and harder to deny that it happened. I can mishear something. Your boy's half deaf, like, right? Students, y'all know this, you'll talk to me and I'm like, I don't know, I have a clue what you just said, sorry, right? I can mishear something pretty easily, right? But he moves on from that to, well, we saw, we witnessed it. And then it moves on to, well, we didn't just witness it, man, we examined, we put it to the test. We beheld it. And then lastly, he comes up with, I ate with the man. I touched him. He was real. Like, it gets harder and harder to deny this evidence as it goes on. Are you seeing how that works? So I just want to throw that out there because I think that's really important for the way that we're going to look at the next three sections with verses 1 and 2, 3 and 4 a little bit later on. I think this kind of sits under the surface, but I want to highlight that. Now, this also brings us to a unique question that I'm going to have to ask us numerous times throughout this time in 1 John. Here is a dumb question for you. Who is we? Who is we? When John says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, the we and our, a little bit later on, seem to be the same group. Who is we? The disciples, okay? Somebody else want to give another example or another possible solution there? The apostles, okay, now why would you make a distinction between the apostles and the disciples? Because I'm sure you kind of mean the same thing, but like I do think that there is, if we're going to be really pedantic, frankly, we need to like define why those are different. So what is it that makes the apostles unique in that way? They were commanded to go and be teachers of the disciples who were there Okay, gotcha. So there's, you're making a distinction between the commissioning of the apostles, whereas the disciples could have been somebody who followed. Okay, I think I'm tracking with you, Christine. Okay, they're commanded by Christ. Okay. I think another historic, or actually, I'll go ahead, Rich, go ahead and give yours and I'll. I was just going to say, we could have referred to all the early Christians who were eyewitnesses. Okay, so the we could also be any Christian who were eyewitnesses, and I must now ask, eyewitnesses of what? Of his ministry. Okay. Maybe it wasn't somebody who was around for three years seeing Jesus do ministry, but maybe it was an early Christian who saw Jesus crucified. I think that might be someone who could fit into this category. Okay, So let's return to the idea of the apostles. One of the things that kind of defines uh, apostolicity is someone who has an encounter with the physical Jesus, right? And so you might be thinking, well, how does Paul fit in there? He gets blown off his horse, right? And he has an encounter with the risen Lord, right? So that's how he gets in. And so there are other cats who are connected kind of tangentially to the apostles. And some of them might be disciples. Some of them might be early Christians. I think that's what's going on. I think we're hitting on that really clearly. Here's my point. We here, I do think, is this apostolic witness. And I don't think this is John like writing in the royal we as though he's like, you know, the duke of edinburgh or anything like that or like the queen mother from england like he's not using the royal we there but he is bringing to bear the witness that they all shared we all heard saw examined 
touched. And that apostolic witness carries weight. Okay? Now here's the problem. When we read we for the rest of 1 John, he doesn't always mean the apostolic witness. There are going to be times that he does not mean the apostolic witness. In fact, I would even say that happens in verse 6. I think in verse 6 that changes. I think the hour that we see there in chapter 1, verse 3 and 4 might even be a little bit different than just the apostles, right? So we are going to continue to come back to this question of who is we? Another question we're going to have to ask is, what does he mean by the world? What world is he talking about? That's one of the things that I talked about with semantic range in that intro video. I just want to plant that in your minds right now. We're going to keep coming back to that question. Cool? So when you run into these pronouns, you better believe I'm going to start asking, who is we? Okay? Word? All right. So I think that these sensory issues are really addressing what we're going to talk about as this proto-Gnostic, like this nascent early form of Gnosticism. We'll talk about that much more on this next slide. Any questions about the sensory evidence that we see? All right. So let us talk about Jesus's divinity and his humanity. Okay. I want to read for us verses one and two. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word, the logos of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. So let's just stop right there. Who is us? This is where it gets a little more murky. I think he is still in this one sentence. He's still talking about the apostolic witness. However, early Christians could have fit into that group, that they were evidenced by his physical, corporeal reality right in front of them. Like they saw, heard, touched, felt, those types of things. They might fit in that category as though they, but they weren't apostles in that same category, right? So we're going to have to be really precise when we get to these things. Okay, so here's the first thing I want us to see. Right out the gate, from the beginning, right? That's, that's a really bold claim. That which was from the beginning. And so a necessary question that we should probably ask is, what beginning do you think John could have in mind? I've tipped my hand, I think it's Genesis 1. But there could be other beginnings, right? What other beginnings might you have drawn to your mind whenever John is talking about that which we heard, saw, touched, those things? From the beginning of his ministry, yeah. When, uh, when uh, the flood happened, destroyed the earth and the new beginning. Okay, so you would say that even there's a possibility of like another beginning between not Genesis 1, but at Genesis 11, whenever we see, uh, or sorry, Genesis 6, 7, and 8, whenever we have the, the flood account after Noah, right? Okay. Okay. Here's the point. We're going to have to ask these questions to be precise. Because how we answer that question is going to change how we interpret what follows. But what I'm saying here is I think clearly that which was from the beginning is John calling our minds back to Genesis 1. And the way that I think I know that is, let's go to John chapter 1. Let's go look at the prologue of his gospel. Let's just read a little bit here. What's the first three words in your translation? In the beginning. 
So now we got to say, we could have this same question. Well, John, what beginning do you mean? Well, if you keep reading, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, what? was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And if we're talking about all things being made, what beginning are we talking about here? Creation. And so what John is asserting in 1 John chapter 1, he says, that which was from the beginning, this Word of life, the Word, Jesus, His Son, Right, Jesus, who is the Christ, he is saying that he was from the beginning. And that there is a claim to what? Jesus' divinity. He was there from the beginning. He's eternal. Are you seeing that? And then he follows it up a little bit more. That which was from the beginning, which we heard, saw, touched, concerning the word of life. What about that life? It was made manifest. We've seen it and testify and proclaim to you. That which was from the Father or excuse me, that which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, I think what he's saying there is that eternal life that was with the Father, what he is doing is he is connecting Jesus to this pre-existent creator. Once again, we're back at Genesis 1. And if we're reading Genesis 1, and then we read John chapter 1, and then read 1 John chapter 1, we start seeing some pretty clear um, patterns emerge. The way that Jesus is spoken of there at creation is that in the beginning, the Word was with God and the Word was God, right? So you see that there is a clear, uh, a clear connection to the Word being God, that He is in His nature divine, He is God, and He was also with God. So the point there is that there is a clear connection, but also a distinct separation that he has identified in and of his own personality. Are you seeing that? And I think John, intentionally in 1 John 1, is recalling the prologue of John chapter 1, which is recalling all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. Yeah? You see how the breadcrumbs are starting to get laid out? Excellent. So then we need to ask the question, where did John get this? Where did he get this? Well... Because Jesus believed he was divine. What might be some evidence of that? Let's look at John chapter 8, verse 58, and John chapter 10, verse 30. So in John chapter 8, Jesus is having this big showdown with the Pharisees, and they're having this big hoopla about who are the children of Abraham and who aren't and all this other good jazz. I'm going to pick it up in verse 56. This is where we get the running start to 58. Jesus speaking says this, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Ugh. That's some inflammatory stuff there, Jesus, man. I don't think you probably shouldn't say that out loud. And so the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? And then Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Ugh. It was not wise to say that Abraham looked forward to your day, Jesus, and then you didn't back off of it. You doubled down and said, no, 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 no. He looked forward to my day, but I'm the one who created Abraham. Like, you get that, right? And if you think this is not a claim to divinity, look at verse 59. And so they, the Jews, the Pharisees, the guys that he's arguing with, they picked up stones to throw at him. They were trying to kill him Right then. Why? Blasphemy. What is the blasphemy that Jesus utters? He claims to be God. Anyone who tells you Jesus never claimed to be divine, 
That's just patently false. Jesus believed that he was divine. Let's look at John chapter 10, and I'm going to pick it up in verse 28. He's having this conversation with some other folks. You can go read the context. I'm going to pick it up in 28. Jesus says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch it out of the Father's hand. And then here comes the inflammatory statement. I and the Father are one. Before Abraham was, I am preexistent. I am divine. I am with God. I and the Father are one. There is this association of clear divinity. You seen how this is working out? Jesus believed he was divine. John records that in the Gospel of John. And now John is just teaching that. And it comes out, that which was from the beginning, which we heard, saw, touched, tell you, because we recognize that that eternal life was with the Father. Cool? Are y'all seeing the divinity there? But what about the humanity? Well, we actually already talked about that. If he is real and he came in the flesh, if John chapter 1 is in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and the Word took on flesh and dwelt among us, well, that necessarily means that he has to take on humanity. And what happens with that humanity? Well, John and the other apostles, they heard, they saw, they examined, and they touched. It necessitates there being a human person in front of them. Yes? So I'm kind of glossing over the details of that, but his humanity is clearly evidenced by what he's already written in those verses 1, 2, and 3. Yeah? So here's the real question. Why are we going through all these problems? And I think the reason for that is John is actually refuting these proto-Gnostic ideas. Okay? I talked about that there are three heresies that are going on or three things we need to be aware of um, with, that John is possibly writing about. He's writing about possibly docetic views, docetism, which basically is a Greek word that means seem or appear. And so the idea was that Jesus, who is the Christ, yeah, we'll say he's the Christ, but he's not really a man. He's like an angel who seems like a man, but he's not a real dude. And therefore he can't die, right? He just seemed or appeared to be like a man, but he really isn't. And what John is saying is like, no, he was with God, he was God, and he's human. Okay? The second thing that we have to deal with is Gnosticism. Uh, gnosko is a Greek word that means to know. It has to do with secret knowledge. And Gnostic thought had this one big tenet is that physical material things are bad and spiritual things are good. If that is true, how can a divine being, which is spiritual, incarnate in something that is fleshly, material, and bad? How does that work? And their answer was, well, he didn't. It's not real. That's not how this actually worked. Okay? There was this cat named Corinthus, or Serinthus. He was uh, kicking around in, in and around Smyrna and Ephesus, where John was at about this time. And one of the things he taught is that Jesus, at his baptism, that is when the, what we would say the Holy Spirit is descending on him. He would say, no, 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 that wasn't the Holy Spirit. That was the Christ was descending on him. And now Jesus becomes the Christ at his baptism. And then right before his death and his execution on the cross, the Christ leaves him. So yeah, Jesus died, but the Christ didn't. And what John is saying is, 
No, you can't separate those things. Because even when you look there at the end of verse 3, that we see that Jesus is identified as the Son of God, and that we recognize that we have fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. You can't separate those things. So why does John go so hard in the paint talking about what they saw and heard and touched? That's because he was a real man. We have to hold to Jesus' divinity and his humanity. Now, there's a whole different branch of theology that's what we call the, the hypostatic union and how those two things are perfectly merged and how that's mind-blowing and mysterious. But what John is assuming is like, no, that's, that's what's going on. Yeah? All right. That's verses 1 and 2. Questions, comments. There's more that could be said, but I think that's what I want to distill down for us right now. Are your minds blown so far? Like, is this a lot? All right, well, let's pick up the pace. Let's make it even worse for us. All right, so what happens in verse 3? John is now going to give this invitation to fellowship. Let's read verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, again, he's referencing hearing second time, seeing for the third time. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And I just want to say here, this is actually the first time the, the, the real main verb of this whole section shows up. Why am I saying all this stuff? Well, I'm telling you, I am proclaiming to you. I'm telling you as a matter of fact, and this is important, we proclaim. Let me ask my question again. Who is we? And I think this is clearly the apostolic witness. These are the ones who are commissioned by God. They're the ones who have been physical, real witnesses to the corporeal body of Jesus, right? And that they are now preaching. What is John doing? Preaching. That's what's going on, right? So, he is now proclaiming. And what... What I think is really important here is that what he runs to is, yeah, 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 we're going to get into what Jesus does. We're going to talk about how he is the Holy One. We're going to talk about propitiation in chapter 2, verse 2. But right now, what you need to see is that I want you to know that everyone can share in this fellowship that we have because we know Christ. Everyone. So, one of the questions that we need to ask is, what is fellowship? How would you describe or define fellowship? See, we know what that word means until I make you tell me what it means. And we're like, yeah, well, you know, it's kind of like this thing. But, you know, so how do we describe or define fellowship? How about it? Koinonia, and that is the word that John uses right here. Yes? Okay, they are united. I like that. That's a good way to describe it. Somebody else want to take a, take a whack at it? Shared experiences, okay? And so if we're talking about John and the apostolic witness, what might those experiences be? They've experienced Jesus. We saw him. We heard him. We touched him. We examined, right? Paige? Oh, a definition. Wow, this is what I love. Hit me with it. Okay, so there's this partnership, there's a commonality, and there's this uh, uh, intensity of intimacies, right? Is that what you said? Yeah. 
is this intimacy that comes out, okay? Here, I took a stab at just how to describe it, and I think at the end of the day, joy and oneness within a group. There's these common experiences. There's this common ideas that we share. Incidentally, those values, beliefs, goals, agenda, love, fill in the blank, right? I didn't really talk about it too much, but we're gonna hit this, it's gonna start cropping up, uh, not next week, but the one after. Those three circles that are down there at the bottom, in 1 John, there are three tests to see if there is anyone who is a Christian. They abide by three things. They have right doctrine, they have right obedience, they do the right things, and they have right love. And here's the point. I think that whenever we talk about fellowship, we've got to have those things circled in some manner. We obey, we have the same values and beliefs, doctrines, the goals and agenda and love. Like you see how I'm kind of weaving those things in there. And then lastly, I would say there's a family style fellowship we'll come into. John, you had a comment? Yes, for those of you who didn't hear that when we describe fellowship, that even in the middle of hard circumstances with persecution, there can still be joy and love that comes to the surface in that fellowship. Yep. All right. So let me explain this last bit. There's a family-style fellowship. And where I'm drawing that from is that it would have been real easy for John to say, hey, we as the apostolic witness, when we tell you these things and you are now on the in crowd, it would have been real easy for him to say, and so now you get to have fellowship with the Father and the Son. But that's not what he says first. What does he actually mention first? You have fellowship with whom? With us. And this is where I think that line of, are we talking just about the apostolic witness or are we talking about all Christians? Are we talking about early Christians? He's gonna, he's gonna start blurring the lines a little bit. But here's my point. Whenever me and Casey came back from China, the first time we were doing a debrief with our organization in Hong Kong and uh, we got there, unloaded, went to the hotel and then they took us to dinner at an Italian joint in Hong Kong, right? And it was a family style restaurant. And so if you've never been to like Buca di Beppo or something like that, like in a family style Italian joint, you sit at a table with like seven or eight people and then you order like three or four things and they're like big servings and everyone shares that. And what happens during that thing, there's like, especially if you're trying to be really polite, everyone's like on their best manners, like, hey, can you pass this? Can you do that? But eventually it's going to devolve to where you just like stab what you want and like hope you don't pull back a nub, right? Exactly, man. You start nubbing, you know, or elbowing your boy out the way and like getting to that bread. Here's my point. Whenever we have this fellowship and whenever John is saying that we have fellowship with one another and with the Father and with the Son, like, you got to understand that things might get weird at times. Just like me trying to stab that last meatball or whatever, somebody is going to get offended or they might get injured, depending on how aggressive I'm reaching for that joker. Whenever we are in the family of God, we are necessarily put in a position to where we can hurt each other. And what I think John is highlighting here is, but what is common to all of us is that the grace of Jesus and the experience of what he does in our life covers all of those misgivings. Yeah? So, let me say it this way as clearly as I know how. 
I have more in common with the believer in Hong Kong, in China, in Nigeria, in Finland, whatever. I have more in common with that person whom I have never met. If they are a believer in Jesus, I have more in common with them than I do with a neighbor or a sibling who is not a believer. I have more in common with this guy I've never met because we share all things. And what John is saying is, come get some of that. That invitation of how we have heard and we are now proclaiming to you, this can be yours, right? Are you seeing how he gets to that point? He wants you in the family. All right, let me pause right there. Comments, questions, critiques. All right, let me hit our last point. Then let's look at verse 4. John actually has four purposes that he gives us into the reason why he is writing 1 John. We'll cover those here in just a bit, but let's read it. Verse 4, and we are writing these things. That's a problem, right? Do you think there's like a collection of like four guys holding on to one pen, writing at one time? Is that what John has envisioned here? Like, no. He is saying that this apostolic witness, I am bringing it to bear, and as I am writing it, he uses that we. And again, it's not the royal we because he is divine or some subset of greatness. He's someone who got to witness these things. And what he says is, the reason I'm writing these things, we write these things so that our joy may be complete. And so John has this invitation for fellowship and then immediately follows it up with joy. And he wants us to experience joy. And let me say this as clearly as I can. Jesus cares more about your joy than you do. Jesus cares more about your joy than you do. Whatever experiences that we are trying to pursue so that we can fill up some kind of satisfaction or fulfillment because we think that's going to be the thing that really brings it this time is going to fail you. And in those pursuits, what I think we need to hear is Jesus says, there's a better way. Come with me and I'll show you. So let's look at John chapter 15, verse 11. In John 15, this is in the upper room discourse. This is with Jesus and his boys. This is the last big conversation they have. In John 15, I'm going to pick it up in verse 10. Speaking to his boys, he says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Jesus cares more about your joy than you do. A little bit later in the next chapter in John 16, again, upper room discourse. This is all the same big long conversation. Verse 22. So also you have sorrow now. Jesus is saying, hey, I'm about to leave. I'm about to die. That's what's, that's what's waiting me. You're going to have sorrow now because I'm about to leave. But I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. But now, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Jesus believes that he is the only way that we can experience this real joy. And partly the reason for that is because he is the one who cares about our joy more than anyone else. He is divine. He is the one who created us and he has given us a mold that we are to fit in so that we might experience real joy. And the moment that we get outside of that, whenever we don't obey, whenever we don't abide, you're going to chase after something else and it will disappoint 
I promise you. I promise you. And what John is saying is there's something better. Let's go after it. Yeah? So this is the first purpose of the four that he gives. I'm going to run through these. I am pulling this from Danny Aiken um, with that alliteration. He says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 4, the purpose of writing is to promote full joy. And then a little bit later in 2.1, he says the purpose of writing is to prevent sin. And then later in chapter 2, he says the purpose is to protect from false teachers. And then later in chapter 5, he says that he is writing to provide assurance of salvation. If I were to map out joy in every one of those circumstances, I think I can make an argument for how sin takes your joy. I think I can make an argument that false teaching will steal your joy. And I am certain that I can make an argument that you lacking assurance of your salvation will steal your joy. And so what John says is, this is what we proclaim. There is a better way. Let's do it. Yeah? All right. So we went a little, a little bit longer than about 25, 30 minutes. Let's just stop right there. We're done with like the teaching time. We're about to do our discussion questions here in just a second. Is anything unclear from these first four verses? Yeah, the three rings, that's a, that's a reference. If you look at the graphic with those three rings that are up there, um, it's a reference to these three different tests that John is going to give. The first one he's going to give is in chapter 2, verse 3 through 6, and it's going to be the test of obedience that we obey. And then chapter 2, verse 7, all the way through 17, is going to be the test of love. And then 18 through 3, 5 is going to be the test of doctrine. So obedience, love, and doctrine, doctrine or belief, right? Those three things, if you're looking for how somebody is certainly a Christian, look at those three areas. Are they doing what Jesus asked them to do? Are they pursuing the joy that Jesus provides or are they doing something different? Because if they're doing something different, they're failing one of those tests. Yep. That is one of those things that will become clear the more we hit this every single week. Okay, that's a good question. All right, Sue, yes ma'am. Yep. And we have all these uh, notes online on our website. They will be up there tomorrow morning. All right, other questions? All right. You got enough time there, Sue? All right. If not, steal it from your friend afterwards. All right, so here's a question I want to ask, and this is just to help us orient ourselves to these four verses now that we've seen it. What time periods do you detect that John's talking about here? It's not necessarily so clear on the face of it, but what are some of the time periods that you see G, uh, that John is referencing here in the first four verses? What do y'all see? Who was it? Was that you, Millie? What'd you say? The beginning of creation. So like when we can say time started, there's that, okay? What other time periods? Rich, was that the one you were going to steal or stole from you? Before creation. Yeah. I mean, God was not yeah, God was this, pre, uh, uh, this pre-creation being that has always existed, pre-existent, yes. I haven't figured infinity out yet. No, neither have I. I lose my mind when I think yeah. about this concept, but that, you know, you could just all of a sudden pop into existence yeah. and start creating, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. The, the infinitude of God means that he is infinite in both directions. Like, think about that. Let that bake your noodle for a bit, right? So we've got creation. We've got before creation. What else? In verse 2.2, the life is being manifest. So the life being made manifest. And so that life is whose life? Christ. And so be precise. What time period are we talking about? Because there's at least 30 years we're talking about there, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so his whole life of ministry from birth, incarnation, all the way to execution on the cross. Okay, I like that. Ed, do you have something you want to write or fill in? There you go. And that life that was made manifest, it was fonorao, it was brought about, right, is the word that gets used there. But that also includes like what he did, what I heard and saw and touched, right? Is there another time that you might be able to detect to detect here as well? Resurrection. Resurrection, okay. Right? So we know that that is part and parcel with the life and ministry of Jesus, yes? Uh, Rebecca, was that what you were going to say? Eternal life. So now we went from this pre-creation uh, eternality infinitude in one direction, and now he's actually jumping to the other end of the spectrum and saying there's going to be infinitude that way too. Okay? Any others? Current. current. What do you mean by current? He wants us to experience joy now, every day. Now. I think there's, we could be more precise there. So you're saying he wants us to enjoy. As believers. As believers, okay. So we can parse that out as like there is us, us, but is there a different us that he is also referencing? Mario? His audience. The people he's writing to. So like, here's my point. Is that if John is referencing basically eternality that direction and eternality in that direction, and he is saying, no, 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 this is for you even right now, man, you better not just toss away what he says what follows. He is coming with some authority, and you need to hear it. Yeah? That's my point. Cool? I think we've basically covered, like, every time period that we could there. Infinitude and eternity in two different directions. Cool. All right. So here's the next question. What organizations or clubs or groups, what organizations that you know of claim to have these high levels of fellowship? Right? Fellowship of Christian athletes. Okay? What are some other examples of those groups or clubs that you would say have those high levels of fellowship? Okay, coming on back to the last one. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes. Yep. Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelium, like the first gospel, yes? Yep. 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 Mm-hmm. John was, John was around, yep. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
he, he outran Peter to get there too, didn't he? For the covering of our sins. Yep, and that covering of our sins is what we're going to talk about in John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, with the Greek word halosmos, with propitiation, that no one uses. We're going to talk about it, yes? Joy of eternal life that comes as a result of that. Yep, that's a good synopsis of that time frame, even like putting those epic times together of the arc of redemptive history. Okay, all right, real quick. What are some of these other organizations? Sororities, fraternities, yeah. And I'm, by the way, I'm not saying those things are bad. I'm just saying that those things have some kind of approximation of this. So, oh, go ahead. Masons, Freemasons, right? The Illuminati, maybe, I don't know. Maybe that's your thing. Military. Some esprit de corps, right? Whatever that means, right? <laughs> this pathos of how we approach things. Joe, what would you say? Sam's Club. Sam's Club, the Diamond Club, baby. <laughs> Oneness. All right, so here's the question. How do those things compare with fellowship that's within Jesus and what he offers? Is there a comparison? So why then do we chase after those other things when we just admitted that they don't compare? I'm not saying your homeschooling group or your book club or your sorority or team or whatever. I'm not saying any of those things are bad. What I am saying is it ain't what Jesus offers. It just isn't. Yeah? Tracking with that? Yes, this is the first issue relationships, yeah. We're part of households, we're part of friendships, all these things don't disappear. Yep. But everything is ordered by the ultimate. Yep. By the way, there's just a, this is for free. Whenever we talk about that marriage is an institution, right? That the, the institution of marriage, like, have you ever really thought about why we say that? Because if something is instituted in that way, that means there has to be something external with the authority to say this is what is right and good and how this is supposed to work, right? The family, the nuclear family centered around one man, one woman in a marriage, like that is an institution. And I think from there, you get this issue of subsidiary nature of relationships that as you move further away from that man and woman who are married, the less it looks like that institution. And I'm not saying that's bad, but what I'm saying is in Joe's comment there, that whenever we see that us as Christians and we are adopted into the family of God, that is another institution of the family of God that now orders all those others. It orders marriages, it orders those families, it orders organizations and churches, right? Cool, all right. Anything else? Oh, yeah. Uh, Ashley. Um, I was going to say, you have to also be in the role of the Holy Spirit when it comes to fellowship. Mm-hmm. And just trying to see if you can, through fellowship, just, you know, okay. Okay. So if you were in some other organization that is not Christian and is not centered around the, the presence and the imbuing of the Holy Spirit within individual believers, it necessarily is going to be less than anything else. Because when you have the Holy Spirit, that necessarily elevates whatever that thing is together 
by the nature of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Is that a fair? Can, can Christians have fellowship together in certain situations? Yes, and so I think the question of that you're raising is like, are there scenarios in which real fellowship can be broken? Yeah. And I would say if people are not obeying, if people are not believing the right way and there's false teaching and they're not loving each other, what happens? They are showing, they are evidencing disorder. And I think that's what First John, the rest of this thing, is going to start fleshing out for us. Okay, Millie. Okay. Yeah, and I think that that, uh, that internal fellowship that you're talking about there, that whenever we see in Ephesians, when Paul says that when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, that's something that won't be revoked. That's not something that can Jesus is going to snatch the rug of salvation out from underneath your feet, right? And because of that, there is this security that we have in our identity. I think that's kind of what you're getting at when you talk about this internal integrity that we have because we have the Holy Spirit within us, right? Is that kind of what you're getting at there? Okay, I like that. All right, I'm going to skip the next part of this question, and I want to do this. Um, I want somebody out there to read for me John 15, 11 and John 16, 24, just those two verses. We actually read them earlier, but I just want to throw those two out there. John 15, 11, second person who gets there, just read it out loud. Second person. Janie, you already there? How about it? And this is where Jesus says, I am saying these things so that your joy may be full. What about 1624? Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Ask that you may receive that your joy may be full. So there is clearly a connection in Jesus pursuing and wanting our joy more than we want it. He is after the best version of that. So here's the question. What's the connection between our joy and our ability to glorify God. Can you have one and not the other? Is it, is it directly proportional that the more joy, the more glory you have? Like, what's going on there? You tell me. Can you quote John Piper? Can you quote John Piper? Yeah. That the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever that's the newer version yeah say again he's just updating the westminster yeah catechism yeah so the the point there is well the more that you enjoy and rejoice in god and are filled with joy the more that you see the source of that joy and you worship more you glorify god more okay let's talk about the opposite of that is there a situation where you feel like maybe your joy has been sapped of you, either because of circumstances or failure or sin or whatever else is going on? Because anybody like, yeah, I've got a situation in that vein. Let me just ask, how good were you doing at worshiping God in that moment? Here's my point with this question. I think that if we were to really examine how we think about joy and where that joy comes from, 
we'll start to realize that that joy is not meant to terminate on ourselves, that we are meant to feel good about the situation. No, 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 no. That joy is meant to terminate elsewhere outside of ourselves, encouraging other believers, teaching other believers, evangelizing those who do not have this joy, and worshiping God. I think that's one of those natural outcomes that is not meant to terminate on me. It's for other uh, venues for that to be spread. Rich? There you go. And the joy is being obedient to the last thing that Christ said before he left this earth, which is go tell others about it. Mm-hmm. If you have true joy in life, what is the first thing you want to do? Yep. You want to share it with someone. Yeah, even grammatically, I talked about in verse 3, the we proclaim, that's actually the main verb. There are other verbs that appear in there, but they sit underneath the proclaiming. Well, that's where does John get that? Well, that's what Jesus told him to go do. Okay. Here's the last question, and this is the one that only matters in the most serious of ways, but yet we may not be able to share it here. So here's the question. What's the reader being asked to do after we read this text? I don't want to just like take these four verses and remove them out of their context and say, oh, this is all we need. Like, no, there's more coming, and John's building a case. However, right now, what is it if John, if this is the only thing that we had from 1 John, what would Jesus expect us to do with it? Ashley. Yep. Okay. So that sensory language of like, you also have an experience. What has the Lord done for you, right? Go and tell the Lord what all he has done for you, right? Some dude goes screaming off after Jesus heals the dude, yeah? What else? What else might be what's expected of a reader after reading these four verses? Be in fellowship. Be in fellowship? Let's be precise. Fellowship with whom and how? with fellow believers incubating the truth. I like that. This is what Anthony was saying on Sunday, that a commitment to Christ is a commitment to the local church. It's a commitment to fellowship. Is it perfect around here? No. You know why? I'm here. That's why. Right? By nature, me showing up is going to mess this whole thing up somehow. Just like you. (laughs) Right? But a commitment to Christ means a commitment to fellowship with those who are in Christ as well. Yeah? Sue, did you have something? Okay, I thought I saw your hand. No, I was just my glasses. Sorry. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. Ed. <laughs> believe what I'm telling you. Believe that. I sent it, is what John says. Believe me when I tell you this is what happened. And so whenever I tell you that he's the propitiation, you better believe it's because I saw him bleeding. I saw him breathe his last. I saw the hole where they put the dude, right? He has authority. He is a witness. You better believe him, right? So...
Yep. Yeah, I think that's what Paul's getting at, or Jimmy John's getting at here, exactly what you're saying, is like, if we have this responsibility to experience this joy and to be filled with it and to have this fellowship with one another where we experience that joy and this fellowship with the Father and the Son, like, and he's proclaiming where that joy comes from, then does it not also follow that you should too? You should share that ultimate source of joy and fellowship that we are going to pursue these other things, right? And that's not some like janky live, laugh, love style of like, oh, just feel good about things. No, that means that even when things are horrible, when things are bad, there can still be joy because you know who the author of that joy is. Yeah. All right, let's pause right there. I'm going to give us our homework and then we will be done, okay? I have right here, your discussion questions for next week. We are going to start working through those things. Here's your homework. Continue to read 1 John. Here's how I want you to do that. Next week, through this next week, read 1 John chapter 1, start in verse 5, and go all the way to chapter 2, verse 2. That's the section. Once you get done with chapter 2, verse 2, you stop. You go back to chapter 1, verse 1, and I want you to read all of 1 John chapter 1. When you get done with 1 John chapter 1, verse 10, you stop. You go back to 1 John chapter 1, you read from verse 1 all the way through the end of chapter 5. If you do that over the next 15 weeks, you will have read 1 John about 20 times. Like, just by like osmosis, you're going to have like, the words are going to fill your brain. Like, it's just going to get in there somehow, right? Just by repetition. So do that. That's part of how I want you to prepare. Second thing I want you to start doing, y'all need to start memorizing 1 John chapter 1 verse 9. We are going to start memorizing verses. And this is where all of y'all are saying like, well, that was a good first week. I'm never coming back again. <laughs> because next week, we're going to take time and I'm going to popcorn around and I'm going to ask you to repeat it. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. I do not care what translation you use. Don't care. I would prefer like not the message or word on the street, you know, Translate, uh, excuse me, paraphrases. I would rather that not be the thing we use, but whatever translation you use, memorize 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, and we are going to popcorn around. These discussion group questions, discussion questions, we're probably going to get into little groups and we're going to have a little bit more time for us to talk about these things, and then you're going to present to the group. I'll have you come up here on the stage, I'm going to give you a microphone. You know, we ain't doing all that, right? But we are going to talk about these things. So I want y'all to grab one of these. Sarah is going to have these in her hand and standing at the back door whenever we're done so that y'all can grab one of these sheets. Okay? That's what we're doing. Brendan said he would memorize it in Greek. Memorize it in Greek? I've actually, well, you say that. Like, that's what I've been working through is trying to memorize some of that. Not necessarily in the Greek, but like hitting more of the Greek for this exact reason. Brendan? Sorry, you've been volunteered, dog. So, all right. So, that was 1 John 1. We finished chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Next week, verses 5 through 2 2. That's the next section. Read the section, stop, chapter, stop, whole book. Word? All right, let me pray for us. And then Sarah's going to hand these out on our way out. Father, we thank you that we have your inspired 
revealed word um, recorded for us. It is inscripturated and it is applicable to our lives even today. God, I thank you for the witness of our brother John. I thank you for the countless copyists and translators who have been involved in getting it into the form that we have in front of us. Father, I know that you are the one uh, through your spirit who has superintended this process, and I am thankful for that because we now have truth preserved for us. God, I pray that you would show us truth. I pray that you would show us where real fellowship is found, and I pray that you would show us where, where real joy can be found in your son. We ask all this in his name. Amen. Amen. If you got questions, come talk with me.